And that can only mean one thing. That it's Matt Clarkson's birthday. <laughs> Round of applause for Matt Clarkson. Stand up, Matt. Let's, let's. That is what all the fuss is about. Okay, so I put a really cheesy, um, really cheesy Valentine's Day backdrop. It is, of course, Valentine's Day coming up this week. Uh, it is also Matt Clarkson's birthday, but um, yeah, that's not really what the shops are making a fuss about. Love is in the air. If I could have played that song, I would have, but uh, yeah, I'm not going <sighs> to. Or not, as the case may be. Let's get rid of that. What a load of rubbish. Okay, cheesy animation's over, I promise. Valentine's Day, Mother's Day, Father's Day. They're really difficult times for single people in our church. In fact, every day in our church can be a pretty difficult time for those who are single. They are suffering. Often it's subtle, um, but we're often oblivious to it. So what Anna and I wanted to do was over the next two weeks, either side of Valentine's Day, we wanted to take a look at marriage and singleness, what the Bible says about it, And in particular, how single people are suffering in our church and how we should respond to that. So I'll start with looking at who is single. The first category is people... I've got a hand up. There's there's single people in the congregation today. (laughs) Mm. Well, yeah, not all single people are suffering. We'll see that in a bit. But, um, yeah, people who don't want to be single um, but haven't found a partner to marry yet. That's one category. Then we've got people who had a relationship, had a marriage, but um, for some reason that broke down, so relationship breakdown and divorce, that's a category of people who are single. Then we've got people whose partners have died, widows, widowers. Um, we have single parents, of course. Now, they normally fall into one of the above categories, but they've got such a challenge that they're worth a, a special mention. Then we do have people who are happy being single, don't want to get married, and they feel they're called to singleness and celibacy. And that is it's rare, but it's definitely... Um, definitely a calling that um, God places on some Christians. And then, of course, it's worth remembering that everyone at the beginning of life is single. Almost everyone at the end of their life is single, because it's pretty rare for a, um, a husband and wife to die at the same instant. And actually, everyone in eternity will be single. Okay, so we've looked at who is single. What about people who are married? I've got some statistics here for you, just to test your, uh, your knowledge. What do you think the average age of marriage is in the UK for a man? Any guesses? 30? Anyone go higher or lower than 30? 35? This is 2015 data. It's 37. Average age of marriage for men. What about women? Same? 28. Oh, wow, that's quite low. It's 35, actually. It's more, it's more of a parity than I, than I thought. What about UK evangelical Christians? What do you think the average age for an evangelical Christian male is in the UK? 20? 22? You're not far off. It's 25. 12 years the junior of the average man in the country. Evangelical Christian women, anyone want to chance it? Same. About the same, yeah. 24. That's interesting. Right. Now, people say that marriage is in decline in our society, so I've got some normalized data here um, for the population. And I can show you that for men, from 1950 all the way through to 1979, the average number of marriages was 70 per thousand marriageable adults, so single adults, if you like. Uh, What do you think it was for women? This is um, opposite-sex couples, so it's men and women. You'd think it'd be the same, right? 
No, it turns out men get married more than once, more often than women, so actually there's quite a difference there. 53 marriages um, per thousand for women. So that was the 50s through to the end of the 70s. What do you think it is in 2015 for a man? How many? If it's 70 in the 50s, 60s and 70s, what is it now? Is marriage in decline? It's 22. It's less than a third the number of marriages happening. And for women, about the same as 20. Uh, so marriage is absolutely in decline in our society. Well, having been married, who is single again? What do you think the UK divorce rate is for marriages? What percentage of marriages end in divorce? No one's guessing. It's 42%. Thankfully not as high as 60. It's 42%, but it's still pretty high. Half of those happen in the first 10 years. Okay, so that's marriage and singleness. What about the church? Who is in the church? Who makes up the UK church? What percentage of the UK church do you believe are women? Just over half? 70%? As high as that? It's 65%. 65% of women. Now let's look at the split of men and women and married and single men and women. So married women, we have 44%. And that means if it's 65 as a total, then... Single women are 21% of the UK church. Now, married men then make up 24% of the church, which leaves just 11% single men. And you can see quite clearly on the right there, there are two single women for every single man in the church. In fact, if you're over 55, there are three single women for every single man. And the problem is they don't all go to the same church either. And I don't mean geographically. Apparently, the survey data suggests that men tend to prefer a more traditional service, and women tend to prefer a more contemporary service, so they're not even going to the same places. So it, it really is a challenge. Anna is now going to read from the Scripture and lead us in a reflection. Please do allow this to sink in and meditate on this as we read it. It's a long reading. Yeah, we... Um we felt it was right to read the whole passage. It is long, um, but I would encourage you to, to reflect on it um, and to listen carefully as we go through this. Um, okay. Now, for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come again together so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that you, all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, one has another. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. 
To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say this, I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing. Uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you gain your freedom, do so. For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who was free when called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. Brothers and sisters, each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Now about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it's not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. His interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of the world, how she can please her husband. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right 
way in undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone is worried that he might not be acting honourably toward the virgin he is engaged to, and if his passions are too strong and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He is not sinning. They should get married. But the man who has settled the matter in his own mind, who is under no compulsion but has control over his own will and who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, this man also does the right thing. So then, he who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry her does better. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. In my judgment, she is happier if she stays as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. So I just wanted to really lead us in a time of reflection. Um, I'm aware that there are some things in the passage that can be really hard or challenging to read and hear. So in a time of quiet and in your heart, I'd like you to bring anything like that before God now. There are also some things which may have surprised us in that passage. And so now I just want you to acknowledge those before God um, and thank him that he speaks through his word. Again, we'll do this in silence. And finally, this has probably brought to our minds particular people and situations. And let's just um, name them before God in the quiet of our hearts. Um, There are so many different situations that this may apply to. So I just want us to have a chance to um, speak to God about those. And then I'll close in prayer in a minute. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak to us through it. And Father, we also want to thank you for the body of Christ, for its immense variety, for every different person that you have brought into it that has their different callings and their unique personalities and characters. And Father, we want to thank you for the institution of marriage and we want to thank you for people in our church who are single. We recognise that there are people who are facing struggles in relationships or mourning a loved one. Please draw near to them. May they know your strength, your peace, your healing and your power in those situations. And help us to have ears to hear as um, John brings your word to us. May you speak through him. May he be open to your words as you um, want to speak to us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, I thought we'd begin by asking the question, what is marriage? 
Um, and society, in fact, almost all stable societies throughout the whole of history have agreed on a few key points with marriage. Um, they've all agreed that marriage is um, perfectly normal. It's the norm uh, for men and women to get married. Uh, it also needs to be a public act, something that's acknowledged in public and something that needs to be legally binding, a contract, if you will. Um, it is the basic, essential building block of... Um, any stable society. It's significantly beneficial to society and it's also beneficial to the couple, the married couple, and any children that they might have. And because of this, most societies agree that it is to be regulated, encouraged, and rewarded by the state, by government. So the Bible also talks about marriage. It places a really high value on marriage. Um, and it says that Christian marriage is the lifelong relationship between a Christian man and a Christian woman, and that it's established by a solemn covenant before God. Uh, also, the Bible says that marriage is completely normal. You see in this passage in uh, verse 2, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. So it's expected, it's the norm. Um, it's also status-changing. We read in Matthew chapter 19, What therefore God has joined together... Let no man separate. And in Genesis chapter 2, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So it changes your status before the world. It is a mutual sexual union, designed by God and fundamentally good. In, in verse 3, the husband shall fulfill his wife's sexual needs, the wife should fulfill her husband's sexual needs. So sex is good, sex is created by God, and the marriage is where that's to be explored. It's also important to note from this passage that it's an act of free will and an act of desire. In verse 36 and in verse 39 we see Paul saying, he should marry as he wants. And then in verse 39, she is free to marry anyone she wishes. So that suggests to me that you should actually want to get married. It shouldn't be an act of compulsion. And that you're free to choose to get married or not. It's also an important picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. This uh, is spoken about in Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now, we know that all Scripture is God-breathed, but this particular passage is, appears four times. I mean, um, Moses records it in Genesis, and then Jesus is recorded saying this in two Gospels, and then again we have in Ephesians 5 it quoted by Paul, and in fact Paul refers to it again in another letter. Um, so it's a really important message. The Bible in Hebrews chapter 13 also says... Let marriage be held in honour among all. So we are all to uphold the honour of marriage, and that includes single people as well. Possibly the most important point, which we'll explore in detail later, is that marriage is temporary. That's what the Bible says. And Paul understands this last point really well, and I think he, he reveals his aim in this chapter in the key verse, which I believe is verse 35, where he says, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. In chapter 7, 
Paul is addressing a specific question that the Corinthian church had written to him about. They'd asked him, is it good to abstain from sexual relations? And he begins by teaching about marriage. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to put his teaching up on the screen behind me, comparing what he teaches about singleness with what he teaches about marriage. So he starts with marriage and he says, marriage is normal and serves as a very good defense against the sexual immorality that was rife in first century Corinth. Now, interestingly, Interestingly, the word in Greek for sexual immorality is porneia, um, and that word in English is actually better translated as fornication. Um, But that's a bit of an old-fashioned word, but fornication and porneia have a specific meaning, which means having sex outside a marital relationship. Um, So modern translations don't use that because it's a bit old-fashioned, so they put sexual immorality in, but we get a bit confused as to what sexual immorality actually means. So I just thought I'd put that in as an aside. So, husband and wife, Paul teaches, have equal rights and responsibilities in the sexual relationship, which should continue throughout the duration of the marriage. Paul then also affirms Jesus' teaching on divorce and teaches that Christians should only marry other Christians, but should not seek divorce if they find themselves married to a non-Christian. Then in verses 7 and 8, Paul moves on to talk about singleness, and he agrees that singleness and celibacy are very good, but not all are called to it. We each have our own gifts from God. So that affirms that both singleness and marriage are gifts from God. Of course, Paul's assertion that it's better to marry than to burn with passion is built upon a huge assumption, which is that it's a simple matter to just go out and find someone to marry. Now, in first century Corinth, it was. In fact, the Roman laws of Lex Iulia were in force, and they required single men and single women in their 20s, 30s, 40s, and even 50s to marry, and they rewarded them for having children. So it was a matter of law that you couldn't stay single. Um, Obviously, in modern-day Britain, that's not quite so simple. Especially for single women who are committed to the biblical principle of marrying within the faith. We saw from the statistics that single adults are in the minority at church. Single women outnumber them outnumber single men by two to one, three to one if you're over 55. And with evangelicals marrying on average age 25, the odds become stacked against them the older they get. Now, it's important to clarify, I feel, that the people of God are consistently told throughout the Bible that they are not to marry someone who doesn't share their faith. If we do, we're placing our desires for companionship, physical intimacy, and children... Ahead of God's kingdom, ahead of seeking God's kingdom. However, and I really want to be clear on this, no one should be judged or condemned for marrying a non-Christian. It's completely understandable given the massive statistical, biological and emotional challenge. But it isn't God's best plan for a fulfilled Christian life. The problem is that I can't stand here and say that if you follow God's plan, you'll never feel lonely or hurt or left out. But one of the traps that single Christians can fall into is believing that their life can't begin until they're married, believing that they're somehow not complete and will only find fulfillment and happiness when they're married. That simply isn't true. Just talk to a married person or think about that national divorce rate. It isn't magically fulfilling. Paul is desperate for the church to live lives devoted to God, whatever their situation He wants us not to waste our lives, but to live it with everything we've got. So, should we change our status? 
In verse 17, Paul concludes his section on marriage and divorce by saying, Each of you should continue in whatever situation the Lord has placed you and remain as you were when God first called you. This is my rule for all the churches. He then expands this view to cover not only marital status, but also religious and cultural background, so circumcised Jew versus uncircumcised Greek, um, social and economic status, slave versus free, emotional state, weeping, grieving versus rejoicing, and even general vocation, buying, selling, trading, having possessions. You see, God has a purpose for people in all manner of situations. This passage is actually where we get the sense of a vocation as being a calling. It's from the Greek word kaleo, but it's only in this passage really where it refers to your general vocation. And Paul says that our calling is assigned to us or apportioned to us by God. Look how often Paul emphasizes this. Verse 8, singles, stay single. Verses 10 to 13, married folks should stay married. Verse 15, God has called us to live in peace. Verse 17, continue to live in whatever situation the Lord has placed you. Verse 20, each person should remain in the situation they were in when God first called them. Verse 24, each of you should remain as you were when God first called you. And verse 26, I think it's best to remain as you are. Um, I'm not quite sure what you're getting at here, Paul. Do you think you could be a bit more specific? Ah, yes, okay. He wants us to remain as we are. Well, that's excellent news because for those of you who don't know, I turned 40 in a little under two weeks and I am desperate to stay in my 30s. I, I am in the grieving process for my youth at the moment. But does it mean that single people should never marry? Or, because it's not just about marriage and singleness, that an unemployed person should never try and get a job. No, not at all. It doesn't mean that. But there is an underlying tension throughout this passage, especially concerning the various benefits and the challenges of both marriage and singleness. Paul is acutely aware that we're living in between times. We have the new covenant of grace and resurrection through Jesus Christ. His kingdom is here now, but it's not fully here yet. It won't fully be here until Jesus comes again. Paul is, and that could happen at any minute. Now, Paul is pointing out that our status in Christ clearly supersedes our status in the world. And he is urging us to focus on our eternal relationship with God instead of obsessing about changing our status in the world, whether that's to get married or change jobs or improve our social standing or even just to buy more stuff. And then in verse 19, he says, For it makes no difference whether or not a man has been circumcised. But you could easily put in here, it makes no difference whether or not a man is married, has a good job, has loads of stuff. The important thing is to keep God's commandments. And all of this echoes Jesus' teaching on the matter. In Matthew chapter 12, we read, Someone told Jesus, Your mother and brothers are standing outside and they want to speak to you. And Jesus asked, Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Then he pointed at his disciples and said, Look, these are my mother and brothers. Anyone who does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Then in Luke chapter 20, but also in Matthew and Mark, Jesus replied, Marriage is for people here on earth. But in the age to come, those worthy of being raised from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. 
and they will never die again. In this respect, they will be like angels. They are children of God and children of the resurrection. What a wonderful promise. Now, that was important enough to be recorded in three Gospels. And it was wisdom so great that it silenced the Sadducees and the Pharisees. No one dared to ask Jesus any more questions after he said that. Then in Mark chapter 10, but also Matthew and Luke, we read, Yes, Jesus replied, and I assure you that everyone who has given up house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or property for my sake and for the good news will receive now in return a hundred times as many houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and property along with persecution and in the world to come that person will have eternal life. I think this is why it's so important to have single people in our church and to honour and celebrate them. They are an expression of our eternal future, the new heaven and the new earth, where spiritual family is what matters, not blood relatives. As so often in Scripture, what's physical in the Old Testament is spiritual in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, the people of God were physical descendants of Sarah and Abraham, but in the New Testament, the people of God are grown by birthing spiritual sons and daughters, not physical offspring. It's incredible if you search on the Greek word for, for um, son. Paul uses it so often. It appears so often in the New Testament. He refers to people in the churches that he's planted as, as his spiritual children. Now, that last quote of Jesus is recorded in three Gospels. And if you're a single Christian committed to following the biblical principle, uh, the biblical teaching on marriage turning aside from potential relationships with unbelievers, then I believe this promise is for you. It belongs to you. You've left partners and children for the sake of the gospel, at least for the time being, and you certainly face persecution and pressure because of it. But I believe you'll be rewarded in eternity when the full extent of your spiritual offspring is revealed to you and you can rejoice with them fully. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. So, having established our true status in Christ, Paul turns his attention to what distracts us from it. It doesn't matter whether Paul believed Jesus was returning imminently, or whether his letter addressed a specific disaster affecting Corinth, or the more general trials of following Christ in a hostile world. His teaching is equally applicable, and it applies to us today. He says, the world as we know it will soon pass away. And that's true today. So we're not to cling to things of the world. Marriage and the pursuit of marriage, trading and business, rejoicing and grieving, all these things are worldly matters that will not exist in the new heaven and the new earth. They're not bad things, but they distract us from God. We should live as if we didn't have these distractions. And it's true. You could take the most perfect, uh, most harmonious Christian marriage in the world, but it still takes a tremendous amount of sacrifice and compromise. I mean, take Becky in my marriage. It's not as if I'm constantly thinking about Becky and never thinking about God. I mean, she might argue that I don't even give her a second thought. Uh, You can ask her after the service. But the point is that two have been bound together as one. Now, that's two individual people's passions desires, hopes and dreams 
even their perspective on life, forced to share one journey and walk the same path. I mean, sure, we know from Ecclesiastes 4 that two are better than one. We know that, and it is true. And it's great having close support on your journey. But all too often, I find that we actually want to stand on opposite sides of the path and just stand still and yell at each other. You might be thinking of a Christian marriage. You might have this picture of a disciplined rowing pair, you know, pulling in the same direction. But honestly, in reality, it's more often like a three-legged race. (laughs) I mean... Sure, you can get up a good head of steam. If you work together, you you have a sense of rhythm. But you're never faster when you've got someone else tied to your leg. You can always run faster on your own. Paul is right to point out that single people have a freedom to pursue their dreams and God-given passions without consideration um, to another person. And that's true to a point. But it also sets up the second common trap that single Christians can fall into. And that is rejoicing a little bit too much in your independence and then having a tendency to view marriage with some disdain. But married people, you can't fall asleep here because you have a terrible habit of falling into a a pattern of living only for your spouse or for your children. Now, Mike Pellevacci makes this point wonderfully, and I won't do it justice. But he says, if you're single, your your, your life doesn't belong to you any more than if you're married. The point is, your life belongs to God. And if it belongs to God, it belongs to his people. Your life belongs to the church. This is true for all of us. Your life is for the sake of others. Your anointing, your gifts are for the sake of others. Your money is for the sake of others. Your possessions, your time is for the sake of others. So what does this mean? It means serving the church, serving one another, and loving one another until we burst. We put that right at the heart of our our vision for Bretton Baptist Church. We have to be family together, committed community together. The church is God's antidote for loneliness and isolation that racks our society in the digital age. I pray two are better than one all over this congregation. Not just in marriages, not just in couples, but wherever two people are drawn together in a relationship, I pray two are better than one. I pray that we can realize that and see that come to be. But it will only happen when we give our undivided devotion to the Lord. When we actually care enough about other people to get involved in their lives. And I mean their real lives, not their Instagram feed. To put an arm around them and encourage them. To be honest with them and show them our own vulnerability, our own struggles, so that they understand that it's okay to not be okay. In a world that's obsessed with sex and that creates an impossible ideal for marriage, we need to hold up God's word, his standards, and teach them to our children. There must be no hierarchy of status in the church. I don't care whether you're rich or poor single or married, black or white, all are in Christ. All are equally valued and all must be celebrated in church life. Now later on in this, le- uh, in this letter, Paul says, no one should seek their own good but the good of others. Parents, are you more concerned about the children's and youth work or about the ministry to single people? Single people, what about you? I want 
everyone to think about who you are blessing. Who are you looking out for? Who are you drawing alongside? What can you do to encourage and affirm someone who is in a different situation to you? What can you do this week? Just think of one thing. It doesn't have to be a big thing. It doesn't have to be a hard thing. But I want you all to think of one thing that you can do to affirm and encourage someone. And then do it between now and next Sunday. If we all take that to heart and we all go and do something specific, can you imagine the amount of blessing, the amount of encouragement that will come from that? Now, I've gone on a long time, but it's an important message. Let's end in prayer and then we'll worship together. Father God, I thank you that you have assigned all manner of different situations to us. I thank you that you've called us there. Not that we might always stay there, but that in that situation we can focus on you. We can love you and we can show your truth and your grace to the people around us in our current situation. I pray that the people of this church will live full lives, fully devoted to you in whatever situation they're in, Lord, and that they will feel the blessing, the warmth, the love and the encouragement of the people of God, of close fellowship with you and close fellowship with one another. Lord, will you bind us together as a church? Help us to love one another as we go from this place. Amen. If you find yourself in a place that you think is land of suffering, I want you to know that God is right there with you. He is your strength. He is your power. He will bring healing and restoration. He can do immeasurably more than all you can ever Imagine the joy of the Lord is our strength. Cling on to the joy of the Lord and his ability to be in your situation. And he will bring fruit from that. I just feel just an overwhelming urge really that God wants to give you an invitation so whatever you're feeling this morning whatever uh, has been talked about this morning has made you feel I want to invite you forward now for prayer Um, I'd like to pray with you if there's anybody else that would like to come forward and pray too if you feel a tug from God right now that you want to accept an invitation whether you already know him or not then please come forward